Thank you. Good morning. That song is really growing on me. I like singing that, that song. It, it, it has a little Motown feel, too, and I don't know if that has anything to do with it. You didn't, you didn't catch that while you were? Oh. You're a young group. You don't remember Motown? All right. Hey, we're in Judges and Samson. I hope you were here Sunday when I introduced Samson. If you weren't able to be, you can hear it. You can catch it off the World Wide Web. And it would be worth listening to because I set Samson within the context of Judges and Judges, of course, within the larger story of God, a story that involves us. And <clears throat> Samson is in the early chapters of the story, and we're in the later chapters of the story, and Jesus, most importantly, is right in between Samson and us. So I hope that uh, you'll kind of grasp that. Last, me last message uh, from Sunday will help you grasp that, I think, and, uh, and help us to have the perspective I think we need to have so that we can squeeze everything that we want uh, that I think there is, and there's a lot to, uh, to learn from Samson. He is kind of a cautionary tale in many ways, and, uh, and so he's not so much a model, but an anti-model. Not so much a hero, but an anti-hero. By that I mean, you know, uh, if you look at him, you might say, oh, now I know I shouldn't do that because if I do that, it's going to mess up everything. And uh, so we'll learn some things about Samson each Sunday as we, as we look at Samson. Turn, if you haven't already, to the book of Judges. It comes right after Joshua, which comes right after Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a very big book in the Old Testament near the front. So if you, if you find you're in Deuteronomy, just keep going a little bit, turn the pages to the right, and you'll come to Judges. We're in chapter 15, and I'm going to read chapter 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, not chapter 15, chapter 14. Oh, I'm in such a hurry, I can't even keep up with myself. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That's a man of action, I might add. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of our relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines 
ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. These marriages were arranged, so dad had to lead the way. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Timnah was only about four miles from Zorah, which was Samson's village. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed, oh, excuse me, a young lion came bounding toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, that tells you something about your reader. Oh, yeah, I know about a young goat. Not a lion, but uh, yeah, many a tearing of a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she was right in his eyes, in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me where it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. On the fourth, they said to Samson's wife, entice or coax him. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people. And you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I've not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? You might add, If I don't tell them, should I tell you? 
She wept before him. Seven, the seven days that their feast lasted and on the seventh day told her because she pressed him so hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And then he said to them, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back. I imagine him stomping back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, this is a very, you know, compressed account. I mean, there's just not a lot of fat here. A whole lot of stuff happens here. But one thing we see that's common to everything that goes wrong, everything that's broken, all the wreckage that's left is Samson. He's the common denominator, and he is angry. In fact, the story ends in hot anger, red-hot anger. <laughs> Yesterday I was reading in another source uh, of antiquity talking about a man's anger, and it, he used the adjective ancient anger. Boy, I thought that was choice, you know. That just told me so. Ancient anger. In hot anger, Samson stomps back to his father's house. And the question becomes, Samson, do you have good reason to be angry? You know, I've, I've, con I've made it plain over the years that my, my number one problem was I was an angry man. I grew up with an angry father. I, I just... I've been married 40 years, and that woman is a saint because it didn't start easy. I was still an angry man. It took a long time for Christ to get all of me, you know? And in my anger, I would explode things. I know men like to blow things up, but anger unleashed is volatile and catastrophic, and it leaves a lot of wreckage in its wake, and it hurts people you love. It hurts, the, it just, it's like a bomb. And I learned that my anger had a lot to do with my ego, with my pride, with me being number one. And it was hard to get out of the way of God because I was constantly saying, God, move over this is my territory. These are my people. I know this culture. I grew up here. I can handle this. I'll call on you when I really need you. And that was super foolish. Super, super foolish. But it becomes natural to an egotistical person. Samson is an egotistical, prideful man. It's all about him. 
And that's something we accentuated, underscored, and emphasized when we looked at chapter 13 and an overview of Judges, uh, particularly Samson last week. What was there for Samson to be angry about? Think through this with me. Samson's the one who went to Timnah, a Philistine place. Samson's the one who saw the girl and wanted her. Samson's the one who decided to marry her, get her. Samson's the one that thought up the riddle. In fact, he's the one who hosted the marriage feast, the bachelor party with the 30 companions, and decided to be the life of the party, tell his riddle, which wasn't really a riddle because nobody knew the answer but Samson. He was the one who made the wager, 30 silk shirts and changes of clothing. He's the one who named the price. He's the one who knew the secret. He's the one who gave the secret away. He's the one who blames everybody else but himself. And he's the one who takes it out on others. I mean, it is so bigger than life, it really is like a caricature, you know, when you exaggerate certain features. And I'm glad he does. It's, it's helpful because it helps us to see our greatest enemy. You know that old saying, I've seen the enemy and it is us. We are our own worst enemies in the end. But ego and pride is often a lot subtler than we see it in Samson. But we see ourselves in him. Samson thinks only of himself. Samson doesn't give God a thought unless he needs something from God. And I would say Samson is a man of our times. If Samson lived today, he would be on Facebook. How, any of you on Facebook? Just to get an idea, not many of you. Wow, you are not people of the time. So, uh, well, one thing about Facebook, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, indulge me for just a moment. But on Facebook, you know, uh, people have their picture and their name, and they can post little things. They can get the word out there on all kinds of things. A lot of people, they post things about what they're eating, uh, their children, oh, just any manner of things. But what I find common are little sayings, you know, quotes. And if Samson were on Facebook, he would post this quote, be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. I've actually seen that quote on Facebook. It's a quote by Bernard Baruch, and I think, why do we have to post things like that? Let me listen to it again. Listen to it carefully. Be who you are, 
and say what you feel. Because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. Why do we post stuff like that? I mean, it's nothing new. It's nothing that we don't know already. I mean, do we really need to be told that? Doesn't that pretty much come naturally? You know, I am who I am. I say what I feel. If you mind, you don't matter. And if you matter, you won't mind. In other words, just accept me as I am. I'm glorious in whatever I am. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true, but I think sometimes we like to post that sort of stuff. We like to see it in print. We like to know that somebody out there, uh, this guy, uh, Bernard Baruch, who must be important, and he was, by the way, pretty important, I suppose, by earthling standards, but if he says it, then it must be okay. I ought to do that. I ought to glory in that. And I just want to say, you know what? That's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem. You see, what I see in Samson throughout Judges, but very clearly, and we're going to look at this in some detail next week, is that pride is the one way that's the wrong way. The one way that's the wrong way. And of course, uh, it's the one way because we're number one. So that's the way we roll, you know? That's the, way I, that's the way I go. It's natural to us all. And what I am interested in helping us see this morning is there's a healthy pride and there's a harmful pride. I mean, there's a healthy pride in the sense of respect and dignity, but there's a harmful pride in, in, in the sense that I am self-indulged, self-centered, self-focused. It's all about me. No one matters as much as me. And when push comes to shove, I'm going to put myself first over you. And you see, in a spiritual sense, in the, in the sense of the gospel, in the sense of God's story in which we fit in, that's a huge problem because that says, God, move aside, get out of my way. You don't matter as much as I matter. And in effect, that says, God, I'm God. Oh, I don't like to say so because nobody wants to hear me say that. But practically, that's the way I treat myself. I'm the center of the universe. Nobody matters as much as me. Well, of course we don't face it like that. That's just too brute. That's too raw to say that's what it's all about. But you know, I have looked at my life and that's what it comes down to when I'm putting me first. And that's why I think Samson is a man of our times. I got to I, I mentioned a moment ago I've been married 40 years, and there's a lot to celebrate. I, I, by the way, it's hard for me to believe that I've been married 40 years because I'm not even 40 yet, but <laughs> there's more to celebrate than there is to mourn, but you know what I mourn in 40 years of marriage? 
and this is a pastoral confession, I mourn our biggest fights. I can't remember them all, but I can remember who started them. And that's where the confession part comes in. It started with me. By the way, you might have thought they were really serious issues, but you know what we fought about? I've boiled it down to two things. This may be instructive for you. I'm a cautionary tale. We fought about where we're going to eat, and we fought about navigation. (laughs) Now, I want to be clear. Shelly never argued with me about where we were going to eat. It wasn't like... I want to eat there. And she said, no, 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 I want to eat over here. I would say, honey, where do you want to eat? And she would say, I don't care wherever you want to eat. Can you believe this? A fight started over not having an opinion of where we should eat. That is just there, there, there is the mystery of pride and ego. That a fight could, evo- you know, just erupt out of, and then it would come from, you know what, I'm tired of always having to make the decision. I'm trying to get you to decide. Oh, I won't even go into the navigation stuff. <laughs> if you don't think you're prideful, then you are not a driver. It's just as simple as that or you haven't driven very much. Samson is an emblem of our times because he's an emblem of human nature. Billy Graham said, self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. You know, I've always appreciated this saying, and perhaps it will ring in your ears when I say it. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Definitely, humility is the opposite of pride. And when we think of humility, then we tend to... Well, when, you know, when I first became a Christian in 1972, I wanted to please the Lord and give him first place in my life, and uh, I wanted to, to be a humble man. So um, I put myself down, and if somebody said something nice to me, I said, no, 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 it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And You know, <laughs> this, that's not what humility is all about. Uh, I, I, Lewis is right. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not saying, oh, I am so inferior. It's not an unrealistic view of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, have you ever tried to think of yourself less? It's kind of like um, if somebody says, think of... uh, I want, to th- I want you to think of your favorite food right now. Have you got it? Have you got it in mind, what's your favorite food? Now I want you to put it out of your mind and 
I don't want you to think about it, no matter what happens. Of course, a speaker should never do this because now you won't hear a word of what I'm going to say hereafter, but um, trying to think of yourself less is, is kind of like saying, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not. And of course, then you become preoccupied. What you have to do to think of yourself less is have something better to think about. And the Bible gives you that answer in the person of our Creator, God. And that's why in the Old Testament, the great commandments are, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 4.4. But listen, Jesus made that the centerpiece of his message, and he emphasized the double command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. God enables you to put others ahead of yourself. Listen, I have just been so amazed. I've thought about how would people know morality without God's word or without... We all know how we want to be treated. The ancient law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a law of equanimity, of equality. Love your neighbor as yourself implies that we know how we want to be treated. We know what's good for us. We know what would please us if you asked us, what would you like us to do? What we're required to do is to treat others as we treat ourselves or would treat ourselves. And that tells us that we understand how to do what we need to be doing out there. But it becomes embodied in a double command when really the power to let go of ourselves, to think less of ourselves, to not worry about ourselves, is to love God and fulfill our love of Him in caring for others. Setting their interests above our own. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Being courteous to people. Being kind. Holiness. You will fulfill holiness if you give your life to loving through the power of Jesus Christ, the very love that He demonstrated in His sacrificial death for you and me on the cross. And the power that is invested in us when the Holy Spirit is poured out through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that great promise of the Father put into the hands of Jesus. Read Acts, and he invests in his people that we might demonstrate what he's like. That is a life of increasing selflessness. But here's the beauty. The more you get out of the way, and the more you care for others, the more you will discover the real you. The real you. Look, at, I'm up here, and I, I probably make a fool of myself every Sunday. I could not have done that. I could not do that. 
when I was young. In high school, when public speaking, I was so afraid. Do you know why I was so afraid? And do you know why I was shy? And you know why I thought I was inferior? Because I was full of myself. I was afraid you wouldn't like me. You would reject me. I might say something stupid. I was so quiet. You know why? Defensive mechanism. You can't pin anything on me if I don't talk. If I just wander around and look cool, and I was all about trending and looking cool because I wanted to be accepted more than anything else. So I was putting out a persona, and you protect your persona. And you know what? A lot of us still wrestle with that kind of, we've become more sophisticated, more adult. It happens in the church. People know how to look the part, talk the part, but they can't be transparent and honest because they're afraid. If you really find out about me, you won't like me. I'm so thankful that God sees through all that and loves me anyway. And when that love really begins to pierce your heart and affect the way you care and love for others, it will start to glow in your life in such a way that you are driven by love and not by self. And I would say, if you don't think you are your number one enemy, then read Paul, because when he talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh signifies, is emblematic, is a cipher, a symbol of the flesh designates me, all of me, in my independence, in my, God, I don't need you right now. When I'm standing on my own two feet, when it's all about me and I don't want to be bothered or helped with God, by God, then I am in the flesh completely. That's why the Old Testament says the flesh is like grass. It withers and fades. And it's in the flesh that we put our strength, isn't it? And that's why Paul says, now you have a battle, a battle royale as a Christian, because you have been invaded by the very Spirit of God. He's trying to take over your life. He's trying to live through you. And to do that, you in your flesh have to submit to him. That's in Romans 8. We read Romans 7 a little bit. I don't know what I do, what I try to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do, I do do, and it is do do. And then he cries out in anguish at the end of Romans 7, and you go right into one, there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what's he go to right away? The flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And in verse 5, he says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Set your mind. Be preoccupied. Be focused. Then Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walk after the Spirit. Who are you following? Who are you going after? Who's leading you? 
Don't let them lead you. Don't go after them. Let the Spirit lead you. Go after the Spirit. Walk. Let your conduct, let your life, let your experience be after the Spirit. And again, he goes right on and to say, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And he says, your life will bear fruit. And what is that fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, self-control. And it's beautiful. You want to be a beautiful person? Let the Spirit take over. He'll make you beautiful. And people will look at you and they'll say, I, you inspire me. You inspire me because you demonstrate faithfulness, kindness, goodness, gentleness. You're real, not fake. Man, I've had so many people, you know, use me, take advantage of me, but not you. How, how is it that you live like this? I want to be like that. You say, yeah, you, there's, there's a Savior, Jesus Christ. What does he say in Ephesians 5, verse 18? He says, don't be inebriated. Don't be under the influence of anything. He mentions wine. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be inebriated. He says, be under another influence. Be filled with the Spirit. Set your mind on. Walk after. Be filled. These are all expressions for what? Lord, I need you to be the guiding, influencing, preoccupying influence on my life. I need to see the world through your eyes. I need to see other people through your eyes. I need to find the strength, the energy, the willingness to postpone my own gratification, to trust you. I need all of that in your strength, Lord. And when you start caring for other people, you'll find yourself in a way you never thought could be. I could not talk to you. I couldn't do crazy animated things or, you know why I don't worry about it? Because I'm more concerned to tell you things that have changed my life than whether you like me or not. We'll talk more about ego, pride, self infatuation next week when we look at chapter 14. Will you stand? If God has put something on your heart that you would like to uh, talk to us about or share with us in prayer, after I say amen, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, and their wives. And if with any of us, if you'd like to pray, let us pray with you. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, for the power of your Spirit in our lives. Thank you for using us even when we're in competition with you, in battle with you for control of our lives. Help us to trust you all the more, to know you're the perfect Savior who wants to do things in us that will be like that which we see in Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful peace and wholeness that we have in Christ. And we praise and thank you in his matchless name. And all of his people said, amen. God bless you.